Please be seated. Good evening to you. Psalm 16, our journey through the Scriptures, Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. And if you just wave to them and get their attention in some way, they'll get one into your hands. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that, a Bible, that Bible a gift from the Lord tonight to you. I want to just remind you in case uh, some folks attend on the Sunday evening and um, not on the morning for various reasons and just want to remind you that tomorrow evening, 6.30, is a water baptism right here at the church. So if you're a Christian and you've never been water baptized, here's an opportunity to be water baptized. And uh, we'll talk all about the reasons for it tomorrow evening just before the water baptism. You just need to bring something to get baptized in. We'll have changing rooms and we will take you from there. And so uh, take advantage of the opportunity. So again, we're going to have beautiful weather for uh, water baptism tomorrow evening. So take advantage. And then everybody come on out for it. It's a great time. So we pick things up in uh, Psalm 16 uh, tonight. And I think it's important to understand uh, the theme that is central this, to this uh, psalm in order to understand it. And what is central to the two verses that are actually central <clears throat> to the psalm itself, verses 5 and 6. I'll read them uh, to you. O Lord, David writes, you are the portion, uh, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot and the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. And then very significantly, yes, I have a good inheritance. Now, David, this psalm is introduced, as you see, <clears throat> the beginning of it is a mictum of David, and that means a meditation or a prayer uh, of David. And in, Dave, in the psalm, David celebrates the uh, good inheritance that he has received uh, from the Lord. You notice he says in verse 1, Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. So David is in hot water again, some kind of situation that he is in the middle of where his life is unjustly or unfairly, <clears throat> excuse me, in danger as a result of, of whatever circumstance he's in the middle of. The, as we look at the life of David, and sometimes we can kind of figure out where these psalms fit into his life. Sometimes he makes it very clear in the introduction that he gives to the psalms. Other times uh, we haven't the slightest idea where it fits into David's life. And sometimes we can take kind of an educated guess. And this is one of, of those psalms. David probably wrote this psalm early in his adult life when he uh, was the on top of the world, literally, uh, in things. He was the cupbearer or the uh, armor bearer to uh, the first king of Israel, a king by the name of Saul. And he, then he went from that position to becoming a very accomplished military leader. God's favor was upon his life. He continued to get promoted and promoted within this kind of uh, kingdom of King Saul until ultimately he was given one of the king's daughters, a daughter by the name of Michael. And so now he is married into um, ro the royal family, which is like to go from looking after sheep in Bethlehem to becoming married into the royal family. It would be the kind of thing like pinch me. And, and so uh, this is how 
elevated he has, he has become in his life. But God has an anointing upon uh, David's life, an anointing that Saul did not have. He frittered it away and he wasted it. And because God's favor was upon David, Saul was threatened by that. And so David's great victories as a military, in his military campaigns, the wisdom with which he conducted himself with people, Saul could see that this was a threat to, to him. And even though he knew it was God was behind it, and what's the use of resisting God on it? Uh, in the carnality, he attempted to resist God and literally attempted to take David's life multiple times until David was forced to flee for his life um, from this position that he had within the king's family and run off to try and protect himself. Now, you put yourself in David's place, and so we read about the fact, okay, Saul throws these spears at him. He has to run for his life. What in the world does that have to do with an inheritance? Here's what it has to do with an inheritance. One day... David, as he looks at his life, all he sees is security in all directions. Here he is. He has this great position within the nation. He has God's anointing upon his life. He is a a leading kind of member of uh, Saul's cabinet. He is married into the family. So as he would look at his life all the way out into the future, it looks as if to him he's not going to have a material problem for the rest of his life. He is absolutely as secure financially as a person could possibly be in that day and in that age. And yet in one day he wakes up and Saul now has this murderous attempt, uh, intent against him. He's running for his life and in one moment he's lost everything. The inheritance as a, as a child of Israel, he's been separated from the worship of God at the tabernacle. He's been separated from his family. He can't go to Bethlehem and visit them there. He's been separated from his wife. He's been separated from all material and financial security. He goes out the door with the clothes on his back. He doesn't even have two quarters to rub together. And that's how fast an inheritance or the wealth of this world can be gone in this life. The Bible isn't kidding when it says riches can take wings and fly away. They really can. And there's, there's no sureness about a physical inheritance. So David is looking and realizing everything that I thought, I thought my life was set. I am set for life, materially speaking, and in one day it's gone. But then the Holy Spirit does something very beautiful in David's life. He takes his eyes off of the inheritance that can be lost, and he puts his eyes on the inheritance that can never be taken away from us. And that is the inheritance that God gives to us. And so David, as he writes the psalm, he begins in the greatness of the loss over here. In one sense, God takes and consoles him by putting his focus on one item after another after another that are his in God in order to remind him that he didn't lose a significant inheritance at all. The most significant inheritance of all remained with him. And so he begins to list these things. uh, Verse 2, O my soul, you have said 
to the Lord, you are my God. And as he's thinking about his inheritance, all of these friends are gone, all of these family members, everybody that was supposed to be faithful in his life, all of them gone. And when he looks around, there's God still with him. God's commitment to his relationship in, in our lives. So sure, he'd lost all of these other things, but when everybody else was gone, he looked and said, God, you're still here. He said, my goodness is nothing apart from you. In other words, I have no goodness uh, or anything uh, pleasant in life apart from you. You're the one that makes life worthwhile. You're the one that makes life worth living, Lord. All of those things that you bring into my life, they are still there. And then as he continues to count his blessings or, or number his inheritance, he says, as for the saints who are on the earth, other people that knew and loved God, he said, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Thank you for your relationship with God. Thank you for your love for God. You have no idea what it means. And maybe we're not supposed to, this side of heaven. What it means to me, what it means to other Christians, that you walk with Him and that you know the Lord and that you are a part of just one church in this community, one of many churches, but a place for us as God's people to assemble together in times like this where there's the loss of everything and to realize I am still rich as long as I can assemble together with God's people, as long as I have a church to go to. And it's the truth. I remember one time years ago we were in Israel and, and um, uh, leading a tour of, uh, of Israel and on the final day of that particular tour, we were in what is like the pinnacle of the trip. We're at the garden tomb and at Mount Calvary where Jesus was crucified. Within eyeshot of just standing there, we, we can see with our eyes where the three most significant events in human history occurred, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we always partake of the Lord's Supper on that final day or two of the trip. And we were assigned an area in that in the garden tomb area. And they have a lot of different places that can accommodate different size groups of Christians in that. It's a very nice large area that is um, managed by uh, a Christian organization out of England. And so we were given this one area and then right next to us in a kind of a larger area, there was a another Christian group and Christians are, there are not that many Christians in Israel and so you, you come to treasure them. But this guy was, this pastor was there with his congregation there and he started to speak about the things he wanted to speak about. And I mean, he was Pentecostal off the graph. So and I say that affectionately, by the way. So he starts a hum and a high and a hoo and a he and a hum and a hoo and a ha ha hoo and a hoo and I can just see the net, the clean, you know, the handkerchief working on the other side of the barrier. But he, anyway, he got so loud. I, nobody in my group could hear me speak. And, and so I kind of went out. Uh, of the side, some of you are on the group, you might remember, I went off the side to just kind of go to the back of his group and just get his attention to see if he kind of quiet down so we could have 
our own uh, version of what we want to do, a little quieter thing happening there. Uh, not better, but different. And, uh, and so I couldn't get his attention. He just went on. And so we came together and said, praise the Lord for the diversity in the body of Christ. And we uh, it didn't spoil things for us at all. And we just kind of muddled our way through there on things. It was interesting. We got on the plane to leave. And who sits right across the aisle from me? But that pastor. Now, he didn't know me. He couldn't recognize me because he never, I could never get his attention <laughs> on the thing. He was lost in his world, and it was, it was great. And so I sat down and I looked at him, now in a completely different context. I watched him sit down, take care of his wife, get her situated, take care of the group that was with him, make sure they were in their seats and all taken care of and all. And then I watched him eat his meal. I watched him recline that seat and put his blanket there and get ready for a long flight back home. And I just looked at him and I just praised the Lord for his love for the Lord and for his ministry, his care for the body of Christ and, and just the, the beauty of his life and what he'd given himself to. And this, this whole thing, how God works in our lives to give us an appreciation for one another. Yeah, we have spots, we have wrinkles, we all do and all, but there are these greater things that unite us as Christians. The body of Christ is a fabulous thing to belong to. And if there were nothing else other than Christ himself, it would make us rich enough. He says, their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer, nor take up their names on my lips. And so David thanks the Lord for uh, his inheritance, that he doesn't have to live his life worshiping what everyone else in the world worships. And the low form of life that follows uh, that worship of what doesn't deserve to be worshipped. God, we have you to worship. He said, O oh Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. He says, you are my inheritance, Lord. And he just praises the Lord, not for what the Lord gives. And we're thankful for what the Lord gives because he knows that we need things from him. But that's not what David is talking about. David is saying, I am thankful for you if you gave me nothing. I'm thankful for the relationship with you. And he says, the, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. And the idea is a full cup. And a full cup in those days was considered to be a blessing. Lord, I am blessed by my relationship with you. You maintain my lot. And, of course, they gave, they divided up the land of Israel by lot to the, by the 12 tribes. And so the lot was, and the, the lot lines fell in accordance with what God determined. So basically David is saying, I know you've anointed me as king. I know I'm going to become king. I know you don't violate your promises. All of that is going to be true. And so no matter what man has done to me, I hold on to your word. I hold on to your promises in my life. The, what they do to me cannot violate your plan and your purposes for my life. And I hope you believe that, especially as we serve the Lord, because you can hit those things and you can think, that person is going to kill me. Or those three people have the power and the way they're working this thing and they are going to absolutely stab me in the back and destroy me. Don't believe it. They may do something, but God will never... The gifts and the callings of God are without repentance. They will never be successful. 
in changing God's plan for each one of our lives. They can make it messy, but even then God turns it all around to develop godly character within our lives. The lines have fallen to me in good places. Lord, your will for my life, this is the greatest life. I'd rather run from Saul and be in your will than to be in that palace with all of those riches and be out of your will. Isn't that the truth about life? And then he says, uh, yes, I have a good inheritance. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. What, a, what an inheritance that is, to, to have God's counsel. I like it in the book of Isaiah. It, it talks about the highway of holiness. And, and the highway of holiness, we get on it by you know, knowing God's word as counsel and then obeying. It says even a simpleton, so to speak, can, uh, can live a, a fabulous life by simply obeying God's word. I'm so thankful for the Lord's counsel. I don't have to live under my own counsel of the, wor- counsel of the world. My heart also instructs me in the night season. In other words, we have access to God's counsel all the time. No office hours. Isn't it nice you wake up in the middle of the night and the older you get, the more you wake up in the middle of the night for a variety of reasons, by the way. And your first thought can go to him immediately, talk with him about anything, sleeplessness or any kind of a deal. And, he, and, and that, that office is always open to us. I have set the Lord always before me. In other words, the privilege of getting to follow you, Lord, because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. God, I thank you that I'm immovable because you are at my right hand. You are present with me, and therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. And so, Lord, you've provided me with a life of gladness and glory and a life of hope, and so he has. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, thanking God for the fact that uh, he has a victory over death, David does. And then he declares concerning the Messiah, nor will you allow your Holy One. Your Holy One means speaks of the Messiah. Nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. In other words, life as God intends, still counting his blessings. In your presence is fullness of joy and that your right hand our pleasures forevermore. And here in verse, uh, latter part of verse 11, he's talking about the life after this life. And so after this life, in your presence, there's the fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures uh, forevermore. And so he anticipates this well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. This is the Old Testament version of that. So he says, these are all of the things that I have in this life. And then he starts to count his the blessings of his inheritance that reach beyond this life and into the next life. And so there's this beautiful uh, looking at this inheritance and listing the inheritance as as he does here, uh, one after the other, and and, uh, this inheritance that God has given and that there's no way that... uh, 
it, it can be taken away from us. And so David is in essence saying, yes, you can look at me in the physical sense and uh, it seems like I've lost everything, but don't feel sorry for me. I'm doing absolutely fine because all the loss of this physical inheritance has done has caused me to appreciate my spiritual inheritance all the more and in a way that I wouldn't otherwise. And that's very, very true. And that kind of thing happens all of the time. Now, it's very interesting, and a person might look in, at verse six, uh, chapter, uh, Psalm 16, rather, and then just see this kind of in verse 10, like this mention of the Messiah just out of uh, nowhere. And, and it's a bit, one of the very, very significant prophecies concerning the Messiah in the entire Old Testament. Um, Isaiah had written that when the Messiah came, that he would die, and that he would die a very violent uh, death. Isaiah chapter 53 graphically lays that out. And, uh, and yet David here writes that the, psalm, uh, that the uh, Messiah would die, but he would not remain in that dead condition long enough for his body to see corruption. In other words, he would be resurrected from the dead even as Jesus was on the third day. And so you say, why this mention of the resurrection of uh, the Messiah, of Jesus, in the middle of this psalm that is recounting uh, the inheritance? It is because the, of the fact that the resurrection of Jesus introduces us and brings into our life an even greater inheritance, the inheritance of everlasting life, the inheritance of forgiveness of sins and the cleansing of sin. In the Old Testament, all of the sacrifices in terms of the relationship that David had with God, those sacrifices were offered simply to provide a covering for sin. And here we put our faith in Jesus Christ and our sins are washed away. And so here we have the forgiveness of sins, everlasting life, access to a relationship with God that the Old Testament saints could hardly have dreamed of. And that's our inheritance. And it is ours because Jesus died to make it ours. That's the thing about an inheritance. An inherit we get an inheritance because two things line up. Number one... Someone loves us. And number two, uh, someone dies. And that's what Jesus has done in providing us with the inheritance that he has. He died in order to provide us with this inheritance, and he did so out of the greatness of his love. And so this great prophecy concerning Jesus and the greater inheritance that he's brought into human history uh, uh, here is in the context of the, the inheritance for that very reason. Uh, sometimes, you know, when you're raised, you know, people get illustrations from all kinds of places, but the psalmist, this psalm really reminds us of the fact that we're rich. We are fabulously rich no matter what happens to us in this world. Now, some people, like in the old days, you know, the old time, the pastors, they would grow up and they would know Latin and they would know Greek and Hebrew and they'd read all of the classics and bring their illustrations out of lofty literature. And then you get people like me that are raised on... Uh, cartoons and Mad Magazine. <laughs> All I can think of is like Daffy Duck, you know, sitting on some pile of gold. You know, I'm rich, I'm rich, you know, and that dumb voice of his and all. And there are cartoons like that. But we are, we are fabulously rich. And these riches lie beyond 
anything that anyone can take away from us. In verse, uh, Psalm 17, David cries out in this psalm, uh, essentially, hear me, uphold me, keep me, hide me, deliver me until I awaken in your likeness. So he says, hear, hear me, hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry, give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. Let my vindication come from your presence and let your eyes look on the things that are upright. You have tested my heart. You have visited me in the night. You have tried me and have found nothing. I have purposed that my mouth shall not transgress concerning the works of men. By, uh, by the words of your lips, I have kept away from the paths of the destroyer. So David is saying, sometimes it looks like when David's bringing forth his innocence that he's claiming that he's sinless or something like that. He's not. What he's saying here basically is, God, there is a great uh, opposition to me and a persecution of me that isn't the result of some known deliberate sin within my life. I am not, um, uh, my life is, is not, uh, and actions are not worthy of what people are doing to me here. And then he says, not only hear me, but verse 5, then his prayer for God to uphold him, uphold my steps in your paths that my footsteps may not slip. I have called upon you, for you will hear me, O God. Incline your ear to me and hear my speech. Show your marvelous loving kindness by your right hand. O you who save, uh, O you who save those who trust in you from those who rise up against them. And then in verse 8, he said, Keep me as the apple of your eye. So, Lord, keep me is the next cry that he makes. Now, the apple of the eye could be translated literally the pupil of uh, the eye. So he says, Keep me as the pupil of, of your eye, God. Or um, it literally means, um, Keep me as the little man. And so, you know how you can somebody gets real close and, and they're, they're talking to you and all, and you can see your reflection in their eye as a little man? How close does somebody have to be in order for you to see yourself as a little man in the pupil of their eye? Pretty close. And so David is recognizing that God's going to keep him because of how close God is to him. Keep me as the apple of your eye. And then he cries out, hide me under the shadow of your wings from the wicked who oppress me, from my deadly enemies who surround me. They have closed up their fat hearts. With their mouths they speak proudly. They have now surrounded us in our steps. They have set their eyes crouching down to the earth as a lion is eager to tear its prey and like a young lion lurking in the secret places. Arise, O Lord, confront him and cast him down. And then here is the next plea that he makes for God to deliver him. Deliver my life from the wicked with your sword and with your hand from men, O Lord, from men of the world who have their portion in this life and whose belly you fill with your hidden treasure. They are satisfied with children and they leave the rest of their possession uh, for their babes. And so he's deliver, he says, deliver me from the kind of person 
who lives their life uh, abundantly, richly in this world, but never recognizes that abundance comes from God. When you could have in the ancient world, when you could have enough for yourself and then to give an inheritance, so to speak, to each of your children to follow in that same kind of materially abundant life, you are fabulously wealthy. But David looked at that and said, if I would rather have virtually nothing by comparison and a relationship with you than to have all of the riches that they have and not to acknowledge you is a part of that. And I'll guarantee you, we get more pleasure out of two pieces of toast and a cup of tea in the morning that is enjoyed as a gift from God and recognized as such as any meal that any person could ever eat in the face of the earth and not acknowledge God as the source of that. And so David said, deliver me from this kind of person. And then in verse 15, he says, as for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. And so David here, he talks about Uh, the future joy in his life. And so uh, here he's living his life, his today, all of this mess that he's in the middle of, dominated really by this great eternal future that he knew was coming. Again, so when he says, uh, speaks of seeing God's face in righteousness, he's longing for the day that he will just stand in the very presence of God. And, And to see God's face in righteousness, again, it carries the idea that He has lived a a well-lived life, and he will hear that well done from the Lord. That's what he is is living for, was David's way of saying, listen, all of this other stuff doesn't mean anything to me. What What will satisfy me one day is when I see you face to face, and I hear that well done from you. And so this alone could satisfy David. The Apostle Paul, he lived with that same kind of heaven-dominated perspective as well. Romans chapter 8, verse 18, he said, For I reckon, he knew there'd be an Oakdale one day. And they had to relate to the Bible somehow. So he says, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. And so Psalm 17 reminds us that whatever our portion is in life, whatever uh, we might witness of the prosperity of the wicked, the child of God lives with the knowledge that for us the best is yet to come. Satisfaction can never be attained to fully in this life. It happens ultimately when we see him face to face. When we see Jesus face to face, it will be pure, complete satisfaction. And it's good to be reminded of that. I, I remember uh, years ago when uh, Karen and I were new Christians and I was listening to Chuck Smith uh, cassette tapes uh, like crazy, uh, one right after the other, after the other, after the other. And so we were taking our daughters down along with Karen's parents. We were all going down to Disneyland, Southern California. And, and so as we headed down there, we worked the thing out so that we could be there on Sunday morning and see Pastor Chuck teach the Word of God face-to-face right there. 
So there we are sitting just in the perfect place to sit in that thing, nobody tall in front of us, the whole got the seat, the whole deal, and then it's announced to us that Pastor Chuck isn't going to be there. But that a man by the name of Guy Duffield was going to teach one of Pastor Chuck's um, instructors in Bible college. Okay, great. Guy Duffield took that pulpit like a bolt of lightning. I can remember the service to this day. I mean, here he is, a very elderly man, and he just simply took over the room. It was fabulous and, and a really be, had a great affection toward him as a result of that time of, of his ministry of the Word. It was fabulous. Well, he would go to be with the Lord at the age of 89. And when he was buried, he requested that he would be put in the casket and was an open casket at his ceremony, that he would have his Bible in his right hand and a fork in his left hand. And the reason that he asked for that is he would always tell the story about a woman in a church who, when she died, she wanted to be buried with a Bible in her right hand to speak of how important the Word of God was to her and to her life, and then a fork in her other hand because she said, uh, as a Christian, she had attended so many potlucks, so many Christian potlucks, and when they would collect up all the dishes after the main meal and all, they would say, hold on to your forks, the best is yet to come. And so she was buried that way, and Guy Duffield was buried in the same way. He wanted to communicate to everyone at that service and to us in this room here today the impact that the Word of God had upon his life, but also that he had lived this life in this life with the realization that satisfaction is not found fully here, but ultimately the best is yet to come for every single Christian. This is as bad as it gets for us. This is as hard as it gets for us. And that is a very, very good reminder. The best is yet to come in the heaven that we will graduate into. And then Psalm 18 is a beautiful psalm. You might look at it. I don't know. I've got the Schofield Bible here. And boy, that's, that's like two pages long. That's a long old psalm, isn't it? Yeah, I just hear you just turning back. And so you've got to turn a page here. To... And actually, the, I think the length of the psalm is intended to communicate something. Because what David does, see, we're supposed to love long things, long sermons, um, <laughs> long psalms. This is what is communicated in the Bible. So, but the psalm is an interesting one because David just stops and he reflects upon how good God has been to him and how faithful God has been to him. So it is a psalm of prayer and a psalm of praise and thanksgiving to God. And I think even the length of the psalm is intended to communicate that we can never praise God enough. We can never give him thanks enough. That will never be a problem probably for most of our lives is that, oh boy, I've got to stop thanking God so much that I'm probably driving him crazy. He's without a doubt 
worthy of far more thanksgiving or far more praise than any of us offer to him. Really kind of a sad situation in uh, Jesus' ministry. There were ten lepers one time. Leprosy was an incurable disease in those days. And they all cried out to Jesus, Jesus, cleanse us. And Jesus called on them to go to the priests and show themselves to the priests. And as they made turned in the direction of going to Jerusalem, each of them was cleansed of their leprosy. Nine of them were Jews. One of them was a dreaded Samaritan. This is a spiritual half-breed, a nobody, a nothing, a nincompoop spiritually. And as they receive that cleansing from God, only one of the ten comes to Jesus to give thanks. And Jesus said, is there only one that comes to give me thanks and the one is a Samaritan? Where are the other nine? Where are the nine Jews? Only the Samaritan came to give thanks. None of the Jews did. And the point of it is this, and we all recognize it, is that we can become so accustomed to God's blessings that we just start to take them for granted and we stop giving him the thanks and the praise that he deserves for these blessings that he brings into our lives. So it's good to be long at thanking God. It's good to be long at praising God. And the fact that Jesus noticed when he was thanked and when he wasn't thanked and that he further blessed the one who thanked him tells us that it means a lot to God, that he loves like any father to bless his children, but then he loves to hear good manners in the children, that it is acknowledged with thanksgiving. And so this is the background of the psalm, a long psalm of thank you and praise directed to the Lord. He said, I will love you, O Lord, my strength. What in the world? You got a grown man saying, I love you to God? You think about David. That guy was one, I mean, he's love God. One tough guy. Saul has killed his thousands. David has killed his tens of thousands. In hand-to-hand combat, the smell of blood, the ability to, to take and put your life in danger in that way for the sake of the nation and the protection of other people. And I mean, this guy was off the graph, a man's man. And yet he loves God. And more than that, he's not afraid to communicate it. So he says to the Lord, I will love you, O Lord, my strength. And beautiful to see that. Don't be afraid to lift up holy hands to the Lord and, and to do it as a man. Now I'll tell you, the, if it, the men's one-day conference that we had just uh, three weeks ago or whenever it was, maybe four weeks ago now, and this whole room is just full of, oh, man, just full of men and, and all of their diversity. <laughs> just like, it's so... Wonderful, and it's so weird and all. But I mean, you just see every kind of person, and then, boy, the first time that chord is struck on that guitar and things start, boom, the whole place explodes. These guys, they're pulling up in Harleys, they're pulling up in all this kind of stuff, and they're ready to tell God that they love Him and they don't care who knows about it. It's a beautiful thing. And so David then tells the Lord, I love you, my strength. And, and then, 
uh, David talks about what he has learned about the Lord from experience. He said, the Lord is my rock. He said, my fortress. By the way, the word my in these two verses is going to be repeated eight times. This is what he knew about God personally, not from a book somewhere, a correspondence course, or from the home fellowship and other people talking about God. This was his experience with God. He knew God to be these things in his own life. Now, how do you come to know God as my rock unless it's sometime in our Christian life we find ourselves in the middle of circumstances that everything in our life shakes and moves on us but God? And so the only way that David developed this kind of depth of relationship with the Lord was through difficulty he went through that God showed himself faithful in the midst of. And so, so, I'm, I mean, I, so I want this deep personal relationship with the Lord and I want to learn practically, experientially that God is all of these things, but it's going to mean tough times. The Lord is my rock and my fortress. How do we learn of him to be my fortress? Not just Alex's fortress or Joe Bacicalupi's fortress, but my fortress, except that I'm under attack and I discover him to be a fortress in the middle of it. He is my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and so shall I be saved from my enemies. I don't like pain. I don't like to get hurt. I like security. I like safety. I like all of those things, just like everybody else likes. But if, it, if, if living a life that is uninterrupted, all of that causes me to miss knowing God as these things, then it's not worth it. And God knows that. So sometimes you say, you know, is God, God, I believe, help me in my unbelief. Or God, okay, I'm open to that happening. And I mean, we can even just wince at what, I mean, what's going to come out of this? And he gives us the grace to walk through that season. And no difficult season ever robs us of anything. God owns the cattle on a thousand hill. He can return to us in a, in a nanosecond. But then the, this deep character that he develops in our life and a depth of relationship with him that we wouldn't otherwise know except for hardship in our life, that's what he develops. And one day... When you and I, if the Lord tarries and if it happens this way for you, when we are lying in some hospital room and the sheet is there and everybody's talking in hushed tones all around us and we know they're keeping something away from us and we know we just have hours to live, in that moment we will so thank the Lord that he has developed that kind of relationship in our life and that we know him in that way. So God is preparing us for heaven and he's preparing us for all of the things that we're going to face in life. He get, then in ver verse 4, he starts to talk about all of the trials and, and difficulties that he went through uh, in, in, 
in life and God's power and deliverance and all of it. He said the pangs or the cords of death surrounded me. Death seemed so certain to him over and over again. The floods of ungodliness made me afraid. And he's talking about the worst that the wicked could dish out. David experienced that. The sorrows of Sheol or hell surrounded me. The worst that the devil could mete out. David experienced that. The snares of death, they confronted me. And in my distress, his response to all of this... I called upon the Lord, cried out to my God. He heard my voice from his temple, and my cry came uh, before him, even to his ears. And so uh, he begins to, uh, uh, all of this difficulty that he's in in verses 4 and 5, all of it does is lay a foundation to testify, as David does in verse 6, to the power of prayer and the importance of prayer. And then God's response to his prayer, verse 7, and then the earth shook and trembled, and the foundations of the hills also quaked and were shaken, because he, that is God, was angry. So now he's going to use very poetic language to describe how God used uh, heaven and earth to come to his rescue in the situations uh, that he needed rescuing in. And so we have a saying uh, talking about moving heaven and earth in order to accomplish something. Well, God can actually do that, and he does do that. And David recognized God used all of his resources, nature, these things, whatever he needed to do to, to take and prove himself bigger than David's trials, then he did that. And smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down with darkness under his feet. He rode upon a cherub and flew. He flew through upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his secret place. His canopy around him was dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. From the brightness before him, his thick clouds passed with hailstones and coals of fire. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. He sent out his arrows and scattered the foe, lightnings in abundance, and he vanquished them. And then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were uncovered. At your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. In other words, whatever God had to do to be faithful to His promises in my life, He did that. And the same thing is true as it relates to our lives. And then he describes God's rescue of his life, his deliverance. He sent from above. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. And he also brought me into a broad place. A broad place is a safe place. You ever watch people climb these cliffs and this kind of thing? And then some people do it for fun. You will see this stuff. It's just adrenaline junkies and all. If you do that, God bless you. I mean, you have my respect. And I must admit I don't pray for you as I should. Anybody that does something like that. Have you never read the Bible about tempting God? But anyway, whoo, man. So broad, I like broad places. I don't like to be on like the edge of buildings or something like that. People, well, I'll stay out of it. Go on and on just with my stupidity. 
And he, was, he has brought me out into a broad place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He has recompensed me, for I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not done wickedly, uh, and have not wickedly departed from the Lord. For all his judgments were before me, and I did not put away his statutes from me. I was also blameless before him, and I kept myself from my iniquity, and therefore the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. And so David, basically what David is saying, he's not saying that he is absolutely perfect or sinless. What he's saying here is he lifts up this prayer to God, and in his relationship with God as he's facing all of this difficulty, he has the confidence that only someone who is walking close to the Lord and obedient willy with the Lord, uh, the kind of confidence with God that that kind of person has. And, and that is one of the blessings of an obedient life is that we have that kind of confidence in God and in his uh, deliverance without having to chasten us at the same time uh, in bringing his deliverance. And with the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you will show yourself blameless. With the pure, uh, you will show yourself pure. With the devious, you will show yourself shrewd. For you will save uh, the humble people, but will bring down haughty looks. And so God's dealing with the humble, with the haughty. And then David's praise uh, for God's help continues. Verse 28, for you will light my lamp. The Lord my God will enlighten my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop. And evidently he had in his military campaigns. And by my God I can leap over a wall. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all those who trust in him. For who is God except the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? It is God who arms me with strength and makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of deer. Speaking of the ibexes in Israel, they can walk right on these ledges and and be sure-footed. He sets me on high places. He teaches my hands to make war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. Now, I don't know. I've had fiberglass bows that I've used, never a bow of bronze. That would be pretty hard to pull. And David just speaking poetically of the strength that God gave to him. And you have also given me the shield of your salvation. Your right hand has held me up. Your gentleness has made me great. You enlarged my path under me, and so my feet did not slip. I have pursued my enemies and overtaken them. Neither did I turn back again till they were destroyed. I have wounded them so that they could not rise. They've fallen under my feet, for you have armed me with a strength for the battle. You have subdued under me those who rose up against me. You have also given me the necks of my enemies so that I destroyed those who hated me. They cried out, but there was none to save, even to the Lord, but he did not answer them. And then I beat them as fine as the dust before the wind. I cast them out like dirt in the streets. You have delivered me from the strivings of the people, and you have made me the head of the nations as a a people I have not known shall serve me. As soon as they hear of me, they will obey me. The foreigners submit to me. The foreigners fade away. 
and become frightened from their hideouts. And so David, speaking of God, elevating him to becoming the king, not only over Israel, but over many nations, but always when the other nations attacked Israel. And God, and then David then defeated them with God's uh, favor uh, in that attack, and, and the kingdom of God was uh, expanded as, uh, or the, the kingdom of Israel was expanded as a result of that. And so David was talking about how God, good God was to give him the ability to not only to conquer in battle, but then the grace and wisdom on how to rule over in a fair way those that had been conquered. He closes with this final burst of praise. The Lord lives. Blessed be my rock. Let the God of my salvation be exalted. Somebody ought to write a little chorus to that. It is God who avenges me and subdues the people under me. He delivers me from my enemies. You also lift me, from, uh, lift me above those who rise against me. You have delivered me from the violent man. Therefore, I will give thanks to you, O God, among the Gentiles and sing praises to your name. So here we see the thanksgiving. We see the praise together in verse 49. Great deliverance he gives to his king and shows mercy to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. And so David takes in as he writes the psalm, he wants to offer praise and thanksgiving to God that God is due. But he also wants to have this written record of the fact that the life that he lived was a life that he experienced only because of the goodness and the grace and the power and the wisdom of God. David never, ever wanted anyone to look at his life at the end of his life and say, David and the life that he experienced, what he experienced, all that he accumulated in life, all that he enjoyed in life, that was... All of that was the kind of thing that a man of David's talents are, is going to naturally attain to in the course of his three, uh, three score and ten. And David says, I am not a self-made man. That's not the explanation of my life. If David is saying, in essence, if you look at my life and at the end of it, you say this life that he lived can be fully explained in his own natural talent and in his own natural abilities. David says, you don't know anything about me. David says, the life that I have lived, I know that I have lived because of the goodness and the grace of God and the involvement of God in my life. And this psalm is intended to make that clear as well. He was a product of God's grace and of God's goodness. And so all of us are. And so this beautiful, beautiful psalm that is written, and again, I think the length of it is significant to communicate. We can never give him too much praise or too much thanksgiving in the course of our lives as Christians because of how lavish he is with his goodness to us. Well, we'll stop there tonight. Pick things up, Lord willing, next time, next week in, in Psalm 19. But we'll ask the worship team to come forward and lead us in worship and allow us a few minutes here to just lift up our praise and our thanksgiving to the Lord. I just, I don't like it about myself, but I, there is this tendency, and I recognize it in the psalm, and that's why the psalm is so important to me, is that, you know, I, 
I can become so accustomed to God's goodness and, and to his faithfulness and to his favor. And I'm, and I'm telling you, I'm thanking him all of the time. But it, this psalm really pulls me back and it makes me stop and, to, and to just say, Lord, would you just search me and is there anything of your work in my life that I'm just, I've gotten comfortable with, I just take it for granted, I'm not offering you the thanks and, and the praise that you deserve for because I want to offer all of that up to him. And so let's give our great God praise and thanksgiving right now.